You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will arrive So I'll stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hello, welcome to the GFR show. I'm so excited you're here. I'm Lisa Cherney. I'm the host of the show. And this is a fun episode today because I get to interview a former client of mine. Valerie Aprahamian is an amazing advocate for kids with special needs, kids on the spectrum, or as I learned through her, the term neurodiverse. And Oh my gosh, the cause is such a passion of hers, and I cannot wait for you to get to know her better and hear her story, because of course, she has a GFR, a wormhole, a trauma-filled journey that has made her exceptional at what she does in her work as an advocate. So here's a question to kind of kick us off. Do you advocate for you or your special, do you advocate for you or your child's special needs? And I think of special needs now in such a different way after working with Valerie over a two-year period of time in her business and getting to know the work that she does. Because I feel like we all have special needs to a certain extent. You know, the idea of neurodiversity is that we're all in some ways neurodiverse you know we kind of all have our quirks <laughs> and our you know things that you know that we know are sort of unique ways that we work and it's beautiful that today you know autism and neurodiversity is more in the media you know in mainstream television you know Valerie talks to us about how things were when her daughter Chanel was born in the 90s and she was one of the first you know, high-functioning autistic kids, you know, in her area and how she learned to advocate for Chanel and then eventually for other kids and helping parents to, you know, learn how to do that for their kids. She has attended over 4,000 IEP meetings. That stands for Individual Education Program Meetings. These are the meetings that the school districts have that determine what kind of special things that your kids get based on whatever it is that they need. And she is one of the top advocates in the country for what she does. And she recently gave up her private advocacy business. And she's going to tell you about, you know, what brought that on and kind of what is she doing now? And I'm kind of proud to hold her up as an unmentored client as that is a huge success to give up an aspect of your business or to press pause or to, you know, really look at what is it going to take to make the impact that we want, even if it means a drastic change in the way that we're doing our work. So you're going to hear a lot more about that. And you're also going to learn about her daughter, Jessica, and what Jessica's role was in really inspiring Valerie to make her advocacy a legitimate business and then kind of where it went from there. And it's just a delightful conversation. You could see she's a powerhouse. You can learn 
can get connected with her through her Facebook group, which we have a link in our show notes, as well as the freebie that she has Tom top 10 mistakes parents make that, that may be costing you services for your child. Honestly, she's the best in the biz. And so I hope that you'll pass this on to somebody that, you know, needs the information, pass on the interview, pass on the resources. And I trust that this story is going to inspire you to fight for what you need from whoever has the power to give it to you and also to fight for the people that you love. Advocacy really spans the gamut for representation through all kinds of situations. And it is not an easy thing to do. And we also need to make sure that we take care of ourselves in in as much, if not more of a powerful way. So I hope that you can move the needle on that in your life through hearing Valerie's story. So without further ado, Ms. Valerie Abrahamian. Valerie, welcome to the GFR show. Thank you, Lisa. I am so excited to have you on the show. You know that I love and adore you and we've known each other a long time and you've been my client, which makes me even more connected to your mission and your expertise and your journey. And I don't have a ton of clients on my show, but I am so excited to have you among those people. And just to share, I feel like your story is such an important story to share. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. So as we were preparing for the show, we were acknowledging all of the various GFR wormholes that you have experienced, you know, in your life. And interestingly enough, I got intuitively that we should sort of start with the wormhole instead of like a lot of the times the the arc of the story is sort of like, let's lead up to it. Let's lead up to it. Let's hint about it. And then let's like reveal what happened. Yeah. But, but I think we had another producer in our conversation, which is your daughter, Jessica. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I felt like Jessica was like, start with me, start with me. So <laughs> who's Jessica? Tell us about Jessica. So Jessica is my first daughter and I had her very young and she was a quite, a, it just sounds like her to say, me, 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 start with me. <laughs> because that's <what> it <laughs> personality. She was very bubbly and fun and loved to have fun. I love to crack jokes and just be silly. And so that definitely sounds like her. But my daughter passed away when she was 28 years old. Uh, she passed in her sleep and The doctors couldn't be really conclusive on the reason why she passed, which is even more excruciating. Yes, (laughs) excruciating, painful, confusing, shocking that, you know, your daughter is fine. And then all of a sudden she passes in her sleep. And so just the shock of it all is just you know, losing a child for any mother is too much to bear. But that was the shock was just, I was just like in complete and utter shock and couldn't process that it even happened for months, just walking around kind of in a daze. But that was a big turning point in my life, of course, (laughs) in positive ways. And, you know, of course, going through the grief of, of losing a child is, is just very overwhelming and takes a lot of strength, determination, and just guts to be able to keep going. And, but I, I, I was able to do that. And I guess we're going to talk about a lot of those things that happened after the passing of my daughter. Yes, for sure. I think why I was guided to start there, you know, and I'm getting like chills and confirmations and I don't know if it's Jessica or my mom or, but I'm just feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling that we are, we are joined by non-physical people that we love. And because I'm currently in a grief journey or, you know, with the loss of my mom at the end of May and the texture of grief and all the ways that it shows up and 
relating to people. Obviously, I feel like I joined some kind of club other than grandparents. I haven't had, thank goodness, the blessing of really dealing with much vivid grief. And I know with my mom, there's a lot of aspects to that that made it, I don't know, I'll say easier, you know, like it wasn't sudden, you know, she wasn't a kid, you know, it wasn't tragic. It was, you know, she was ready for it. We got to say goodbye like seven times, you know, over a two week period of time. And there's just a lot that I believe in what I know from studying grief is, you know, that's making the process somewhat less painful. And it makes me have just enormous, enormous empathy and compassion for, I cannot, I just can't even imagine. I honestly, I can't imagine. I can't imagine how that must've been. And you had three other kids at the time. Yes. Yes. And still do. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Still do. (laughs) Yes. And, and, And that really was my, my motivation and gave me the strength to get through it and heal myself and find a way to live because of my three other kids. That was it. Because I, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have my three other kids. <laughs> yeah. That, and that is the truth because I knew, you know, and they were little at the time, junior high, my other two, Michael, John, Celeste, and Chanel. Uh, Chanel was in just beginning high school and Michael, John, and Celeste were in intermediate school. So yeah, that was really my motivation. And I knew that I had removed myself, even though not my my physical self, but my emotional self was not available to them because I was so busy trying to heal the grief and just process it all. Even years later, I, I was still dealing with a lot And I I was trying to get back to being more present emotionally for my other kids. And uh, thank goodness my husband was there and and filled in the gap for me because I wasn't able to be there emotionally at all. Because all I could do was be for myself, trying to support myself through it. Yeah, because other people really don't know what to say, how to support you how to be there for you. It's And it's a very uncomfortable. People don't like to talk about death and it's creepy for people and it's scary and it's like, Ugh, it makes them uncomfortable. And so people are there right after when it, during the time, you know, they'll come over, they'll bring you, you know, food or make stuff for you. And then they're at the funeral and then they're a little bit after. And then after that, they don't want to talk about it anymore. But that's when you're really like, you feel completely alone because no one understands what you're going through. So it's really tough. It is. And I am quite shocked at how little we talk about funerals and, and deaths and burials and cremation and grieving. And like, you know, it kind of reminds me of when my daughter was little and she first learned about sex and she kind of like her eyes widened and she's like, is everybody doing it? You know, she was kind of like, wait, this is like going on and like everybody's doing it and nobody talks about it. Like she was so, you know, blown away. And it's kind of like, that's how I feel about death. It's like, I mean, nobody's exempt. Everybody's had experience losing somebody, yet it's not a common thing that we all talk about. And it just feels like such a, it's such a shame really, because it's just adds, it's just one more thing that has us feel unique and alone. Right. And like, we're the only ones when like, I mean, I don't think anything could be more uniting than death. (laughs) Like we all die. We all lose people. It's remarkable. Yes. Yeah, it's is really remarkable. And I think it would be less scary if we talked about it more, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It shouldn't be like taboo, but yes. Yeah, yeah. So now I want to go back to when I want to go back to when Jessica was 15 and or about there and Chanel was about three and there was a diagnosis, a significant diagnosis that entered the scene for Chanel when she was just a few years old. So this, so y'all just so you know, like this is, so Valerie is tough 
as nails. Valerie is, she is fierce, y'all. I mean, I just like want to rub up against her sometimes and just be like, give me some of that strength. And Jessica is part of the reason, you know, her childhood, as as with many of us, makes us much of who we are. But there's a whole nother parallel story here that has to do with Valerie's daughter, Chanel, that I want to I want to share. And now I can see why we were guided to talk about Jessica first, because I think it's just going to have everything that you share about what you've dealt with. Chanel, kind of knowing that was part of your experience, I think it's just going to just <sighs> relate to you even more and sending you even more love. <laughs> so tell us about Chanel. <laughs> when Chanel was 22 months old, she had a grand mal seizure. She had a fever. She got a, a fever and she had this big seizure. So I'd never seen a seizure before. And I didn't, especially in a baby. So I didn't know what it was. And oh then gosh. we called the ambulance and then we found out, oh, she is she's having a seizure. And that seizure went on for a long time. Like we're talking over a half hour. Wow. And then it finally stopped and we were in the emergency room. And before that, she was perfectly fine. She was a normal developing child. There was nothing wrong. And then after that seizure, she got diagnosed with autism. And after that seizure, she never spoke again. And she was talking just like a normal little wow. one year old child is mama. Hi, hi, birdie. See, see bird. They're putting together two words. And they're definitely saying lots of one words and they're put, starting to put it together two words. She was doing all of that. And then nothing, no talking after that until she was, and then she was diagnosed with autism and a seizure disorder. And her seizure disorder was a life-threatening seizure disorder because it was the kind of seizures that don't stop. And then you can actually die from the seizure if they if they don't get medical intervention and, and they give the drugs, the seizure drugs to stop the seizure. So on top of the autism, she has this life-threatening seizure disorder. And we were in the hospital a lot. And this is in early 1990s. And that back then they didn't have the technology they do today. So we were in the hospital all the time where she's having a seizure, rush to the hospital or the, or the ambulance guys knew us real well, but our firemen, wow. <laughs> they were always at her house because they would give Chanel the meds to stop the seizure. And this was a regular occurrence at our home when she was young. And then later on, they developed a technology called a VNS, a vagal nerve stimulator. And it's very similar to a heart rate monitor. Yes. That they implant. Not a heart rate monitor. A, no, it's uh, a, I can't think of it now. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a pacemaker. A pacemaker. Yes. Yes. It's similar to that, but it goes up to the brain instead of the heart and it regulates the seizures. It gives a electrical pulse to the brain that, that reduces and can even stop the seizures. So she has pretty much become almost seizure free because of that technology. And that changed wow. our lives after that happened, because we didn't have to worry at least anymore about these horrible seizures that were a common occurrence for her. And then after she, you know, they could stop because she was taking lots of meds as well, tons of meds, which are just horrible on the body. And I was always worried about that as well. But the meds, she'd have breakthrough seizures all the time. It, we didn't keep it under control. So once we had the implant, the VNS, things really calmed down and she really improved because she wasn't having constant seizures all the time that really mess up your brain, set you back, have you regress. And we're always, we were giving her therapy after therapy after therapy for her autism to help her with her learning and help her with her speech and all of these things. And then it would, the seizure would set her back. So we were always under that pressure with her, with her seizures. Yeah. Well, wow, I can't even imagine. And then I'm like realizing you have two other little kids younger than her that are in the mix of, yeah. of this. 
Oh girl. I mean, I always say like, I have one and I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at one and every, and then whenever I talk with, you know, people that have multiple kids, I'm just, I mean, just even that is I'm in awe of. And then knowing, you know, that you had Chanel with these challenges, you're probably totally on edge all the time, you know, worrying if she's going to have a seizure and, and you have babies, you have babies at the time. I had babies. And so when, Chanel is three years older than Celeste, my my third daughter. And then Michael John was born 10 and a half months after Celeste. So when when I was pregnant with Celeste and having Celeste, that's when right around the same time in there where Chanel was getting diagnosed with autism and we were going through the whole thing of the seizures and everything. And I w- we were just trying to process it all and understand it because I didn't even know what autism was. This was in 1991 and it wasn't, you know, a big thing back then. And she was one of the first like wave of kiddos that could they call high functioning autism and now it's just okay. a normal thing like there's millions of them but back then she was one of the, the first that well what is this because it wasn't at the typical autism that we saw years ago was a very very disabled person who was definitely also as well intellectually disabled and very profoundly disabled. And then these new autism kids started coming in where, oh, they have intelligence and they have all these skills and they can learn, but they still have this weird disability that we're just learning to understand. So it was back then. And so it was a huge learning experience for the doctors as well as the educators. And so I felt like a real pioneer with the education as well. But, you know, we'll get in, into that, I'm sure. But but so so I wasn't aware. So I was already pregnant with Celeste and then Celeste was born. And then supposedly the doctors told me, oh, you're done. You're not going to have another child. Your tubes are fried. You have built in birth control. Oh, OK, great. So but I want to add a little story here because my whole life since I was a little girl, I knew because I have a knowing a, a knowing thing that I so I kind of like a psychic knowing thing. And I've always had it. And I know yeah. some things are going to happen and it could be like years down the road. But I know stuff that's going to happen. And then it always does happen. So I've always known I was going to have a boy. I always knew that. And so I'm like, OK, that's weird. I have three girls but I thought I was going to have a boy. That's so odd. Cause it was like this really deep knowing. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm not. And then three weeks later, I got pregnant with Michael John after Celeste was born. <laughs> and the doctors were wrong. Of course, again, they're wrong. No, no, no. I wasn't, I could still get pregnant. I didn't have built-in birth control. <laughs> oh my God. I still can't even, I just can't even six weeks. Celeste was six weeks old when Michael John was conceived. Yes. Well, bravo for that, because I didn't want to have sex for, I don't know, like six months or something. I can't even remember. He's waiting. He's watching that. Okay. Okay. It's been six weeks. I don't even, it probably wasn't even six weeks yet. So, yeah. So, so Michael John was a miracle in some respects, according to the doctors, but you knew he was coming. Exactly. exactly. That's wonderful. Oh, okay. So let's just fast forward in Chanel's journey. So, so now everybody knows that, that Jessica passed away when she was 28. And at the time now Chanel was 15. So she's entering high school. And to kind of tell us all that like sort of happened, that really was the birth of the kick-ass advocate that you are today (laughs) so prior to that I had been advocating for other people because of course Chanel had to be in special education her entire school career she started out in in preschool in the early start program for for kids that are not meeting their milestones and have a a disability label. And so she started off right there. And then, so I started learning about the school system and special education. And I started seeing some, some problems there and just the way that it worked and, and how they didn't really 
give children what they were supposed to have and what they needed. And I started um, finding out a lot of stuff that I didn't like. And then I realized that they really don't know how to teach kids with autism. But I found out of about a school that did that was near our city. It was outside, but we, we had to drive there. It was a little drive for us. But I wanted Chanel to go there to that private school. So I learned very quickly, how do I advocate? Because it was a lot of money. It was like $55,000 back then for tuition a year. Oh my gosh. And back then that was a real lot. And so I learned, I started studying the law and learning how, how do I get school district to pay for this for my daughter? And I figured it out and I, and I was able, I was successful in having the school district fund that school for Chanel, which gave her everything she needed. It was all built in. It was like a, you know, plug and play. You get everything. If you go to that school where in the school district, you have to fight for speech therapy. You have to fight for all, they need a many different types of therapies. And so she went there and she got it out, everything she needed. And then two years later, she came back into the public school and she was starting to communicate better. She was able to sit in a classroom and learn. And then I always had her in a general ed classroom with typical developing peers, not in a special ed classroom, because I just knew in my heart, I didn't believe that that was right for my child to segregate her in a special class with a bunch of other autistic children. I thought, I just knew, even though I did, I wasn't knowledgeable. I didn't have the right. education that, that, yeah, there are statistics that say that, but I just knew that just is, sounds crazy to me. Why would you put all these disabled kids that can't talk in a room by themselves with no typical kids? And they're all they're doing is modeling each other. <laughs> There's no one. How are they going to learn? So and today it's called inclusion. And that's what I do now back then. And so, yeah, it was a big, I've seen it, you know, come full circle, the special education and where it was back then to where it is today. And through the years, so I started having successes. And so other parents started asking me, Valerie, can you help me with my IEP meeting? Can you come to my IEP meeting? And then I started a support group for other parents of kids with special needs because I thought we need to, we're too isolated. We need to start talking. So I, I created a support group and then I started meeting other parents and then it just started growing. And then pretty soon I was advocating and I didn't even know how to you know, be an entrepreneur yeah. <laughs> or build my own business. I just was playing it by ear. And so that was the way it was all the way up till Chanel was in high school. And then Jessica passed away. Mm. And after that, things kind of blew open because some other things happened right on top of Jessica's passing with my husband's business. And that was the 2008 crash and a bunch of other, all that occurred. So the, prior to, to that, my advocacy was just our play money, our fun money, because my husband had a very successful business and we never were hurting for money. And then he lost his business in that crash and we almost lost our home. And so then I said, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make this successful, my business. And that's when I started getting really serious about my advocacy business and started learning how to better market myself. and. I raise my prices and be more professional about it. And that's when things started really to skyrocket with my advocacy. Yes. Yes. And I, I always just admired like, like you're a self-made advocate, like self-made expert. Like you just did the research and you were so like driven to stand up for the rights of your daughter, you know, and you know, it, I guess in a way it's a common sort of mission driven entrepreneur story in that, you did what you needed to do to take care of someone that you love and learn what they needed. And then, you know, transitioning that to help, you know, to help others. But I also feel like you had such survival instincts. It seemed that kicked in and where, where do you feel like those come from? Those come from my childhood in my childhood, I had a very insecure childhood because we were very, very poor a little story. I remember being very little. I was probably, I mean, I know I was less than five. I was probably like maybe three, maybe four. 
But my mom taking us in the closet, and it happened more than once, to hide, me and my brother and my sister in the closet to hide because the sheriff was on the door pounding in the foreclosure sign on our house door. Wow. And so that's the kind of environment and energy that I, you know, had to grow up with, which was the uh, feeling we didn't have enough money, you know, always being scared about the paying the bills. My grandma lived with us and took care of us while my mom worked. And then my grandma worked the night shift. So it was that. And I, and I always swore that I would never be like that when I, you know, grew up that I would never be in that kind of a situation. So it, it, that's a real through line for me, for sure. But then also working on getting rid of that poverty consciousness and getting rid of a, that there's not enough, there's not enough to go around and all of that kind of thinking, which is, you know, just instilled in you when you have that kind of a childhood, but being aware of it and working on that and, and getting way past that to where having an advocacy agency and fighting for the rights of kids, yet being able to make it successful and, you know, and being paid for building special ed programs that cost the district $70,000 a year and getting a good, you know, salary for that. Yeah. Yeah. I know that Jessica dying kind of shook your religious, you know, roots. How do you feel like that the journey of evolving your spirituality, your religious beliefs. How do you feel like that has served your advocacy business, your parenting? Can you kind of like, let's add that ingredient into the story. And I would love to hear how that impacted things as well. Yes. So when Jessica passed, she it was a, just a couple of days afterwards and I was in my bathroom, just breaking down, sobbing my eyes out in my bathroom. And I felt her presence come into the bathroom and it was kind of like a pink color, kind of energetic color that I saw out of the corner of my, of my eye come around the corner when I was sitting in the, on the little stool in my bathroom. And I felt her energy there. And then I, I felt her say, along with a lot of other things, but she said the biggest message was follow your heart, mom, Mm -hmm. follow your heart. And for years, I thought that just is such a, you know, everybody says follow your heart, you know, but it's come to mean so much more than that to me over the years. It was not just something that you say to somebody. It's because our heart is our navigation system and our heart is who we truly are and is really our connection to source. But I didn't know a lot of that before because I was raised in the church in the Christian church and I was I was a very good rule follower and I'm a you know very good A student that follows directions and does exactly what the what I'm told so that I can earn an A because I had to be the best. <laughs> so so I had to break out of the Christian rules and regulations, and I started seeking and searching beyond what I was taught my whole life as a child in the Christian church. And what broke me out of it was Jessica's death, because I just felt something doesn't jive here. And it just was like, no, that doesn't make sense. I have to find out what's wrong here with my belief system and my daughter's death. And all of this isn't working for me. So I started searching, what is my, what do I really believe? What is really my spiritual belief system? And, and I started studying other religions and I started going to yoga and I went to India and I stayed in an ashram and I studied under a guru for a while, but I also studied other religious and other Bibles. And I, and it's, it's so obvious to me that we all are, have the same, the story, the biblical stories are all very, very similar. They just have different names and take place in different parts of the world at different times in the ages, across the ages. And, and it's a very similar story though. But what I focused on with, and what I realized was getting to know myself instead of always trying to make myself good enough to know God or trying to know who is God, 
because source always wants us to be ourselves because we're we're just a spark of source and experiencing ourselves as a spark of source so once i switched that in my head of oh i i need to i need to seek out and know myself and that then therefore i'm going to know source better and and once i switched my thinking and that that way that which also helped me in my healing of and my grief and being able to move on and becoming stronger through all the challenges as well I think my strength prior to that was just because I had a real rocky childhood and I just always had this strength within me that could like, okay, I'm going to take charge now. There's a, you know, tragedy happening and now we're going to do this and we're going to do, and I was like the one directing, okay, this is what we're going to do. And I had this just ability to stay in calm, cool and collected and don't fall apart. And, but it wasn't based upon I think really knowing me and now, and that's what I learned over these years of really knowing myself and, and uh, knowing who I am in relation to, you know, the God that I was taught to worship as a child. Mm, Thank you so much. That makes so much sense. And it's similar to my journey in that the simplicity of loving ourselves first. And, you know, I've come to realize that the strong faith that I had and trying to turn things over to, to God that I was bypassing the self-love part. I was sort of like spiritual bypass. That was like my version of spiritual bypass was like, you know, never mind that I'm not really like, you know, totally digging myself and self-confident and like loving myself, but God will take care of it all, or you know, and to, you know, definitely in the last 10 years or so, self-love has been such a central part of my journey to my spirituality, you know, integrated in, you know, both. So I really hear what you're saying. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So how does your commitment to your inner journey and loving yourself, how does that and how, and I know the answer, but I want, (laughs) I want my, I want the listeners to hear how has that impacted your advocacy work and your support of parents. I think, are you getting to the part where what I, this decision I've made recently? I want to cover that. And I also, what's just coming to me in this moment is just talk about how in the last, you know, few years in your work that you've really added this element that's really focused on parents and their own self-care, like that it's not just about filling out the forms and showing up at the advocacy meetings and like learning the stuff, but that you, through your own process, you know, you've integrated more about like focus on the parents themselves. So I'd love for you to just share that aspect of your work. Yes. So my tendency to throw myself into my work and be a workaholic and never know when to stop because there's more cases, there's more parents to help, there's more kids to help. <laughs> and, and so I just would take it, take it on. Okay, bring it on, bring on some more. And yeah, yeah, I'll just work the weekend and and pretty much not have a life whatsoever. And I was constantly coming into burnout, 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 burnout every year. Basically, I'd get through the year, and by the end of the year, summer would come, and I was basically completely lay in bed and have to recover from burnout for most of the summer and then started again for the next full year because I wasn't prepared or equipped yet or aware yet of my personality of having to, which I've worked on, my workaholic weakness and my type A perfectionism, that kind of thing to take on a cause. You have to be able to put yourself first. And I wasn't there yet. I wasn't there yet. So I had to learn the hard way by burnout, 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 to finally come to the place of, no, I'm choosing myself first and I need to take care of myself and self-care has to be number one for me. And that's how I can take on a cause. And that was a long, hard road for me to understand because I was so passionate about my mission, so passionate about helping all the kids and just knowing that I had the ability and the honor to be able to help these children's 
change their future, their education and their lives that I couldn't, you know, I just, ha- I wanted to just do it more, 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 but there, and there was never any, you know, okay, here's the boundary. There was no boundaries for me. And, and that was a big lesson for me. And so that's what I've been trying to also instill and talk to parents about as well, is that being a parent of a special needs child is draining and can be very overwhelming and it's very difficult. And that, you know, and, and also ends up at 85% of marriages end up in divorce. And then you're left with a single mother without a father raising the child on their own, which even is the worst situation. So self-care and taking care of your relationships and your family needs to come first. And that was a hard lesson for me to learn. It's been beautiful really to watch these last few years unfold. You know, I kind of came in, I was there before, like this was the summer that you didn't get to the summer completely and utterly burnt out and like needing to recover. Last summer, I think wasn't as bad as it had been the years before. And the first summer that we worked together, I remember that I was kind of like a wedge in the door of when you were at that point when you were realizing I'm like really burnt out and it's like, okay, how can we not repeat this? And, and it's hard, like you said, when you're so passionate about a cause and there's never ending people who need you. And then coupled with your childhood of, you know, growing up poor and then you're needing to be the breadwinner, you know, shortly after you know, a couple of years after Jessica died. And so now you're like grieving, you're the breadwinner and you're driven and you have this cause and it's just like a huge snowball, you know, that ends up in a very, very, very tired and burnt out Valerie that then limit kind of then winds up really working against you and limiting the impact that you can make. Yes. So I just really like the, it's been extraordinary to watch you first y'all. She made a decision. I am closing my advocacy business. And I was like, we were like cheering her on on venture calls. Like, I mean, it was such a huge decision, such a huge, scary decision with so many beliefs and limiting, limiting things that could have been like, no, I can't have obligation. And, you know, and she carried out all her contracts and everything like that, but making that decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you make that decision? Well, I really believe not only because of my, of course, my burnout, but the thing that pushed me over the edge to actually really do it was because I've learned over the years that a parent can hire an attorney or hire an advocate to come in and fix things for them in the moment, wherever their child may be, be at that time in their school career. The second the advocate or the attorney leaves and is gone, then the parent's going to be in the exact same position they were before they hired the attorney or advocate, knowing nothing, not being educated, not knowing how to protect their rights. And so moving forward, the same exact thing is going to happen to them. Their child's need isn't going to be met because they haven't been educated and trained to be able to speak on behalf of their child at IEP meetings. So my belief in that was so strong, finally, after going to thousands of IEP meetings, speaking on behalf of parents over the past 24 years, my belief was so strongly in parent training. And I am going to empower parents and I'm going to, my services are going to be parent training now. I'm not going to go in and rescue the parents and do it for them and then walk away and then have them, I I fix it in the moment, but a year later, they have another annual. And at that time, the district can change everything that I did the year before. That's the way it works. That and me just knowing that I want to change my business and I'm not, and and it will cut down so much of my hours, yet I'll still be able to have my, my business. I'm not walking away completely. It was the key to transforming my way that I work with parents, but also continue to use my knowledge and help parents at the same time. Yeah. And I, you have such amazing training programs and so such high quality and so well-researched and so many great tools and Yet, you know, and I think for the entrepreneurs listening, that any of us have ever tried to change a business model drastically, 
whether it's from one-on-one to a group or some other, like ultimately it's, you realize that you couldn't be working full-time as an advocate and then also really launching kind of like a new, a new business model, a new, you know, the group model at the same time. So I'm, I'm excited for the impact that you have yet to make and will make on a bigger scale because you will be, people come hand over fist to Valerie. And I'm sure there's some of you that are listening. I'm like, Oh my God, I need her. And when you reach out to her, she'll say, I don't do, you know, when I'm on advocacy anymore, but I have this now, which she's always had, but now that's the only route that's great for them. And it's great for you (laughs) to have set that boundary. And it's, yeah, I'm super excited for you. I feel like I want people to know how awesome Chanel is doing. So tell us about her now. Yes. So Chanel graduated high school with a high school diploma with honors. Wow. And the doctors and educators told me that she would never be successful in school. She would never be able to read, write, or talk. And they were all wrong because she did. And Mm -hmm. that story is the story of many, many, many of my other clients over the 24 years, the same story that they graduated high school with a diploma too. Just amazing, amazing stories like that I have over the years of helping these kids, which is why I'm so passionate about it because it's it's a child's future at stake. That's what special education is. But Chanel's doing wonderfully after high school. She became a California credentialed dog groomer and she worked at the doggy spa in our Mm -hmm. local town in Corona for several years. And then we moved to San Diego and then COVID hit. So (laughs) we're working on, Mm -hmm. before COVID hit, she started working at the San Diego Humane Society because she Mm -hmm. actually loves dogs, animals, any kind of animals. And she loved it there, but then then COVID. So we're working now on finding her a new job and getting her schedule kind of back on track because it really impacted all kiddos with disabilities, especially adults with disabilities. COVID did. So, yeah. Oh my gosh, Valerie. I mean, I, we could just keep talking and talking. Your story is just one of triumph, like personal triumph, and then just triumph after triumph of who you've been for many, many kids. And I've learned so much in working with you. I've learned about neurodiversity and the word neurodiversity. And then in my love fest for liberated leaders that I represent really as an inclusive event with color, you know, doesn't matter the color of your skin, your nationality, your size of your body, your sexuality. I've, I included neurodiversity and people are like, what's that? And I said, well, what I've learned from my client Valerie is, (laughs) and I'm delighted to share whatever limited education that I've gotten just to represent it as it is not something that's necessarily all that unique, right? I mean, I think like it's a normal diversity in the neurological tendencies of people. You know, there is a spectrum, not just the spectrum, but there is a a spectrum. And you taught me that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, especially today, I mean, most people have some kind of neurological thing going on and, 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 but most people aren't even aware of it. So yes. Yeah. And, and so with the autism spectrum, it's just, they made, they like put this big spotlight on it because of how many people are, we, we do have in the population today. I mean, I think it's down to one in seven boys now are born with autism. It's a little wow girls. So, I mean, this is huge, you know, and I mean, what's it going to look like in another 10 years? You know, we have a big population of people on the spectrum today. So, you know, just getting used to this is part of our population and understanding it and not discriminating and segregating and understanding some of these, most of them are just very, very intelligent and, and have so many gifts and talents and skills to offer the world. And they, you know, they deserve to have, you know, a typical life, like, like anybody else. And so, yeah, that, that's always been my soapbox, you know, is that, you know, it's not, once we understand, I think it's, it's knowledge, awareness, which is, it's come so far from 1991. But I remember when my daughter was born, it's amazing, but we, I think we still have a ways to go. So 
here's what my intuition is telling me. Maybe it's Jessica again. I feel like I want you to share a sort of in a, as a final message, another piece of Jessica wisdom. I think she, and, and, and the other messages that she has given me along the way, she was the encourager of me waking up to the fact of working on me, working on getting to know who I am. And that, 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 you know, saying know thyself, understanding what does that mean? Because a lot of people don't even know what does that mean? No, they, you know, I really know what that means now. And Mm -hmm. because it's a journey inward and that she was always, that was her, the follow your heart went along with, that's kind of like the subtitle. (laughs) <laughs> know thyself. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like I I feel like that's the where to to complete our story with you because it's so much because of Jessica, you know, that sort of thrust you into first of all needing like kind of like I need to make money, but really making it a legitimate business and like you would probably not have really created the structures, raised your prices, like really threw yourself into the learning and the advocating if it wasn't for your grief process. So I feel like it's a good way to end with Jessica's message around, you know, follow your heart and know thyself and to, to really think about what those things mean to us. Yes, that's a perfect way to end. Valerie, it has been a delight. It's a delight to know you. It's been a delight to have been your mentor. It's a delight to just watch you do your thing, girl. And <laughs> I'm so grateful for the gifts that you, you know, give parents and children and for your advocacy in this world. Thank you, Lisa. And thank you for your mentoring and your wisdom and how much you have helped me over the past three years to get where I am today. Thank you so it's much. My absolute honor it's my honor (laughs) all right bye-bye for now oh my gosh i'm so glad you are here to hear valerie's story if you are it has some significance for you to get connected with her two things one is her free gift which is the top 10 mistakes parents make that may be costing them services for their child There's a link for that in the show notes, as well as a link to her really amazingly robust Facebook group called Advocates for Angels. There's parents there, there's teachers there, anybody who is an advocate for kids in any way. It is a very active group and she gives a lot in that group. So I hope you'll check that out if this is a world that you need to be in or need support with. And Valerie's favorite GFR commandment is number four, which is trust your struggle serves your mission. If you have not gotten your GFR commandments yet, you'll definitely want to go do that. Go to gfr.life forward slash 12C. Go right now, grab those. And then it comes with a little bit of a course that takes you through just in a few minutes how to use them. There's 12 of them and it's not a 12-step program. (laughs) So that's your first hint. And I hope that you will subscribe to our show so that you can get connected with all these other amazing entrepreneurs that have been through trauma and come out the other side and are now serving the people they're supposed to serve, the audiences that they're supposed to help, and that it inspires you to do the same. And for those of you that are in our GFR squad, Valerie shares how because she started to speak her truth, how her Facebook group just blew up. <laughs> and it's a great, it's a great confession of how she was holding herself back and what she started to do differently. So if you are curious about that and you want to be in the GFR squad, please join us. We get together once a month. We talk about one of the GFR commandments on a Zoom call. It's a great community. I'd love to meet you, connect with you. So also a link to that in our show notes. Okay. Bye-bye for now.